0: You will recall that prior to our reading of the Sermon on the Mount, we saw Matthew providing a general description of the ministry of Jesus in Matthew 4, verses 23 to 25. He said, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So Matthew tells us that Jesus was going around preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing many people of diseases and demonic oppression. And then he gives us a representative sample of both. He gave us the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 to 7. And now, here in chapters 8 and 9, he gives us several representative stories about healing and exorcism. Matthew is saying, this is the sort of ministry that Jesus did. Therefore, most commentators understand these stories to have been arranged topically as opposed to chronologically. The entire section running from one through 1-1 may be usefully titled the kingdom extended under Jesus' authority. And these representative healings may be understood as demonstrating Jesus' authority over demons, disease, and even death itself. We'll begin reading at verse one. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will... You can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. The Tyndale Commentary on Matthew's Gospel provides a very useful introduction to the issue of leprosy, a disease which is mentioned many times in the New Testament, partly because it was fairly common and partly because of the obvious symbolic element in many of the healings that are recounted. It is worth reading in full. It says this, The leper was an outcast from normal society. It is probable that the leprosy of the Bible was a term covering various skin complaints, as well as the much more serious true leprosy called by the Greeks elephantiasis. Not all were in fact serious or contagious, but all were lumped together and covered by the strict quarantine regulations of Leviticus 13-14. The sufferer was not only potentially a health hazard and likely to be physically objectionable, he was also ceremonially unclean. So this was a serious situation for the affected individual, but it also served to highlight Jesus' particular interest in the spiritual and social outcast. In fact, all three of the representative healings recorded by Matthew here in chapter 8 touch on that theme. We have the leper here in verses 1 to 4, followed by the Gentile servant in verses 5 to 13, and then the feverish woman, Peter's mother-in-law, in verses 14 to 15, which leads to a stampede of people, all of whom were afflicted, both physically and spiritually. The healings that are recorded in the Bible are chosen very carefully. They mean to communicate not just that Jesus was compassionate, although he was, and not just that he had extraordinary power, although he did. They also generally mean to say something about Jesus' particular mission and calling. And here we see that Jesus has authority to heal and restore people who have been made outsiders by sin, disease, and affliction. Jesus brings the outcast home. That's the message that Matthew is conveying here through these particular healings. Thanks be to God. We'll jump back into the narrative at verse five. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. This story reminds us of one of Matthew's particular interests as a gospel writer. Matthew's interested in exploring the nature of the church and the relationship between Israel and the church. And here in the story, we hear Jesus remarking positively upon the faith of this Gentile over and above the faith that he has thus far encountered within the Jewish community. He goes on to declare that many such Gentiles will come from the four corners of the earth to take their place within the kingdom of heaven, whereas a great many Jews will remain outside. That is one of the major theological themes in Matthew's gospel. Matthew is highlighting here for us the true nature of the church. The covenant community from this point forward is made up of all true believers, Jew and Gentile. Jesus brings the outcast home. He has the authority to heal and to restore and to incorporate. (laughs) Thanks be to God. Verse 14, and when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. Commentators speculate as to whether it was or was not malarial in nature, this particular fever. But of course, we can't be sure. The point is that Jesus healed her with a touch. Carson's summary takes us right to the heart of the matter here. He says, the touch did not defile the healer, but healed the defiled. So once again, Matthew has probably shared this story to make the point that Jesus is able to heal and restore people to a right relationship with God. He can address whatever it is that has sidelined them and excluded them, and he can restore them to their proper worship and service of the Lord. Michael Green has identified another possible reason for including the story. He says, the disciples in Matthew's day had their family lives and their measure of domestic sickness. By the way, I'm going to pause and read that again. I think some folks in our day and age in the evangelical church need to hear that again. The disciples, right? The apostles, the the ones whom there were no more anointed than. Okay, so let me start again. The disciples in Matthew's day, had their family lives and their measure of domestic sickness. This story must have encouraged them greatly to pray for healing among their nearest and dearest. Had not Jesus bothered to heal someone closely related to Peter, an early disciple? Then let them expect him to do the same in their day and in their homes, close quote. I think that's important for us to see and for us to say. Some of us read these stories and mine them for theological content, and rightly so. We, we should be asking, first and foremost, what does this story say about the identity and mission of Jesus? Yes, absolutely. Let's think carefully about those things. But let's also mind them for personal and spiritual encouragement. This story is saying that the followers of Jesus can come to him with their personal and familial needs. Now, yes, there, there is a certain sense of purpose around everything Jesus does, but there is also a strong sense of pity and human compassion. We should see that and be encouraged to pray and to appeal to that, to, to appeal to the compassionate nature of Christ and to ask for healing, help, and encouragement. I, I think Michael Green is right. I think the story is included in Matthew's gospel for that end. Verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew was always eager to show us How Jesus Fulfilled the Law and the Prophets. Everything in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. This citation is from Isaiah 53, 4. But Matthew doesn't cite it from either the Hebrew or the Greek Septuagint translation. The ESV renders Isaiah 53, 4 this way, from the Hebrew. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It's also interesting to hear how Peter renders this verse, since this event obviously made a strong impression upon him, given that it happened in his house and personally affected his family. In 1 Peter 2, 24, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Closed quote. All of this serves to highlight a particular tension in New Testament theology. What is the relationship between healing and the atonement? That's that's the question that's being raised here. Now, that's a massive topic, and we can't possibly do it justice within the limits of this format. But I want to just say a few words. First of all, it is clear that for the apostles, these various healings point beyond themselves to the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. That's why John always spoke of them as signs. The the works themselves were important and impressive, but most important of all was what they communicated about the identity and mission of Jesus. The healings revealed that Jesus had ultimate power over all the consequences of sin. He had power over the curse, and he had compassion for lost And broken people. That was good news. And it was good news carried inside of these various signs. They indicated that Jesus was willing to identify with the sum and total of human hurt and pain. He would take it all upon himself when he ascended to the cross. He would drink the cup to the dregs, and he would win a great and final victory over sin. And he would share the spoils of that victory with his people. So, yes. There is healing in the atonement. Because Jesus died, because he bore our griefs and our sorrows and our sins and our iniquities, we can be forgiven and we will all be healed. Some of us may be healed immediately as Peter's mother-in-law was here. Jesus still cares about families and he still preaches the power of the cross through acts of personal healing. So we may be healed immediately, praise the Lord. But if we are not, as many good believing people are not, nevertheless, we will be healed entirely and eternally at the final resurrection. The power of Christ demonstrated Through these various healings and through his victorious resurrection from the dead, give us every reasonable encouragement that a day of great and total healing has been purchased for us through the cross. That is part of our faith and that is part of the testimony of the scriptures. Thanks be to God. Verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Mark tells us that this was after a night of earnest prayer and that he said to his disciples, once the decision to move on had been made, he said, Mark one thirty-eight, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Both Matthew and Mark present Jesus as intentionally leaving behind crowds of people eager to be healed. Jesus did respond with compassion and he did Heal a great many people. But he did not identify primarily as a traveling healer. He came to preach and to call men and women to himself and back to God. Verse 19. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him lord let me first go and bury my father and jesus said to him follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead here we see some of the dangers inherent in a healing ministry however carefully conducted healing attracts a crowd and many people in that crowd may not have reckoned with the high cost of true discipleship and so here we see jesus telling the truth about what is involved in becoming his disciple. There are benefits, yes, but also sacrifices. And so again, we are being reminded that the crowd and the church are not always the same thing. Matthew makes that point artfully in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Despite all the blessings and power of on display in the person of Jesus. As of verse 23, the entire church could fit into one tiny little fishing boat. Note that very well. Many are those interested in the benefits, but few are those willing to pay the price. Verse 24, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord! We are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? That's a very good question indeed. Those acquainted with the Old Testament know that it was God who controlled the sea. We think of Job 38, 8-11, to Psalm 29, 3-4, Psalm 107, 23-32. And, and so for Jesus to exercise such complete mastery over the sea was again an implicit claim to divinity. And Matthew intends for us to see it as such. Verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Just as Jesus exercised power over disease in the first half of the chapter and over the sea in the middle part of the chapter, so to here we see at the end that Jesus has power even over the demonic. Jesus is king in every sense of the word, and therefore he is uniquely positioned to free human beings from everything that holds them captive. We live in fear of sickness and disease, disaster and demons, and in this chapter, Matthew is telling us that Jesus is Lord over all. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at Into the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand, on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the Into the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.